This is Reconsidering, the podcast that explores how to make a living while making a life, or something we like to call the alchemy of satisfaction. I'm Meredith Black. Listening, it's a skill that is hard to perfect. Being perfectly in tune with your conversation partner and listening to the words of what someone else is saying and staying truly focused can be so hard in this day and age. We've all been in a conversation where a minute, maybe two passes by and the other person says, so what do you think? Your pulse picks up, you fidget in your chair, and you realize that you're either going to make something up or admit you weren't listening. A big part of finding a certain level of satisfaction is, in fact, listening to other people, to yourself, to your emotions. And you can't get to that level of satisfaction without perfecting that skill set. Today, we have Jimena Benga Ochea, author of a new book called Listen Like You Mean It. We're going to talk to Jimena today about the art of listening and why it makes us better thought partners at work and at home, and provide us with some tips for cultivating the listening mindset and how to become a more empathetic listener. We'll also dive in and talk about how listening can change the way we build lasting relationships. And of course, we'll talk about Jimena's own journey from researcher to writer and what she has learned along the way. After this quick break, join Aaron, Bob, and me, Meredith Black, to chat with Jimena on Reconsidering. Over the past very difficult year, many people have asked themselves, how can I use my skills and my talents to help out and have a meaningful impact? U.S. Digital Response is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that connects volunteer technologists with governments to help meet the critical needs of the public. Already, more than 7,000 people have raised their hands to volunteer their time and their skills. And they've helped more than 200 communities in 36 states and territories across the U.S. address some of the challenges related to elections, unemployment benefits, food security, COVID vaccinations, and so much more. There is work to be done and impact to be made. Sound interesting? Sign up to volunteer and learn more at usdigitalresponse.org. That's usdigitalresponse.org. My name is Jimena Venguechea. I'm a user researcher, a writer, and an illustrator, and the author of the new book, Listen Like You Mean It, Reclaiming the Lost Art of True Connection. Thank you so much for being here. We are so excited to have you on. One of the first things that we like to do with our guests is have a lightning round of questions. So we'll give you an either or. Don't take too much time thinking about it, just whatever kind of pops in your brain first. So Bob's going to take it away. And away we go. Paper or plastic? Paper. Morning or night? Morning. Newspaper or magazine? Newspaper. Book or e-reader? Book. Computer or smartphone? Computer. Netflix or YouTube? Netflix. Twitter or Facebook? Twitter. Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos? Jeff Bezos. Steve Jobs or Tim Cook? Steve Jobs. Speaking or listening? Listening. Nice. Reading or writing? Writing. Lecture or interview? Interview. Library or coffee shop? Coffee shop. Mansion or apartment? Apartment. Home or office? Home. City or country? City. Hotel or Airbnb? Hotel. Backpack or suitcase? Backpack. Dictionary or encyclopedia? Dictionary. Jane Austen or Madame Curie? Jane Austen. Tolstoy or Van Gogh? Van Gogh. Beauty or wisdom? Wisdom. And last, poetry or prose? Prose. Thank you. Cool. We were super curious about the one about talking or listening. Because, you know, you have listened your whole career, and then you wrote a book, and now you're talking about this book. So kind of which one are you leaning more towards, and which one have you preferred lately? So it's interesting to see it's still listening. Yeah, still listening. And I think good listening is what makes the speaking part easier. You know, it's what informs what you say and how you respond. So I'll always put that part first. 
Maybe we can start with what was the impetus for the book? You know, it's a fascinating but very different topic from what I would typically expect someone in your professional background to write about. And it seems to be getting a great reception. It was a great read. Sort of curious where the idea came from and what the internal motivation was to write a book about this. So the book was something that I was drawn to writing about because I think that a lot of people very simply feel lonely right now and disconnected right now for various reasons. I think there are cultural and political reasons. I think technology is certainly part of that mix, although not the sole reason that we feel so disconnected. But it struck me that the listening skills that I had from working in user research could easily be applied and transferred over to the real world, ultimately with the goal of really understanding other people and connecting with them better and building stronger relationships. And I had actually written an article many, many years ago that was kind of a quick hit, like top 10 of listening tips. And people seemed to like it. And then I kind of set it aside and just did my job, you know, just kind of moved on. But I think a few things happened in the past few years that like really just created more urgency in getting this message out. And I think I certainly couldn't have predicted the pandemic, but I would say that's one more layer on top that has really created that urgency to help everyone connect a little bit better with each other through listening. It's interesting that you talk about what's going on, especially lately, and how people have felt a need to connect and how people have felt a little bit lonely. But it's also a really interesting time where there's a lot going on and there's a lot of chaos and there's a lot of distractions happening. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you right off the bat was, you know, people who are reconsidering their careers and reconsidering what they want to do with their lives and what's making them happy, you know, sometimes they don't necessarily listen to themselves, right? And they listen to a lot of things that are happening kind of in the periphery. And my question to you is, what kind of tips would you give people to start focusing on what they need to do to listen to themselves versus listening to the outside voices? I love this question because it's not just about listening to ourselves in the context of these life decisions of, you know, career transitions and other things. But I also think that so much of what listening actually is, is being self-aware and being able to recognize what's happening for you in the moment in a conversation and what you're responding to and where your emotions are and where your mind is at. And so I think the book sort of talks about this in many different ways, but the core of it is you have to know yourself in order to show up for other people. And as you're talking about, in order to really show up for yourself. And so I think that's learning things about yourself. You know, where do you do your best thinking? So I loved some of the questions that came up earlier because they were very easy for me to answer in the sense that a thing I know about myself is I do my best thinking in the morning. I also know that I do my best work in coffee shops, you know, so it's about knowing yourself. It's about knowing what is your sort of natural, I call it like a natural productivity zone. What are your, in the context of things that might get in the way of either communicating an idea or hearing someone else's idea or tuning into your own idea, what are those hot spots, those kind of tender, sore, sensitive spots that can cause an emotional reaction and maybe make it hard to listen to other people or to yourself when those emotions get to a certain place? And then knowing what is yours versus what is someone else's in terms of those voices and managing those voices what are your needs and what are the other person's needs and trying to keep those separate. And when you can keep those separate, that's what allows you to connect more in the context of another person's needs. But it's also what becomes your own guiding light when you're in tune with your own needs. What I find interesting about what you're saying is I, I experience you as somebody who truly has a researcher's mindset, which I think is maybe a key part of your message around listening. Cause I spend so much time with designers and business leaders who are trying to drive an agenda and they're not, they have more of a outcome mindset. Like they're trying to force action. They're trying to sell their ideas through. And it's interesting because you do sort of talk about, you know, I'm just going to listen and see where things go. And it's a very open, accepting mindset, I think. Yeah. And I think that, you know, in the context of the research discipline, there still is an outcome that you're driving toward, which is you are, trying to learn something and keep an open mind about what you're learning so that 
ultimately you can inform the product, the design and drive a business outcome. Like it still is attached to that end result, but the difference is in how you approach it. And I think the same could be said in a conversation, you know, you may know that you want to get to know someone. You may be at a cocktail party when those come back and you may know you want to get to know someone or in an interview and you may know that you want to get to a certain outcome. But there's a way in which you can do that, which is more about you and more about really steering the conversation and more about digging into the things that you want to dig into, which is different than having that sort of higher level goal, but also being open to where the conversation goes and open to being surprised, to learning something new. And I think that's where we can get in our own way because either there's the sort of ego of, I know the answer or I know what we should do next. That voice can speak louder. And so you don't really hear what's happening. And that's where you have to, again, kind of step back and take that more open-minded approach and bring things like humility into the conversation, which is switching the script a little bit from I'm an expert to I'm a student and I'm here to learn from the other person, whatever that means in that context. You talk a bit about how the pandemic created a lot of loneliness and isolation for people, and there's certainly truth to that. There's an ironic inverse truth to that as well, which is it's forced a lot of depth because there's limited yet extensive interaction with very few people. The experience that I had was I was forced into depth of conversation with a few people, could be my wife, my kids, my friends, et cetera. And I discovered that that's something that's very valuable that maybe I understood on a surface level, but I really hadn't experienced it as much as I'd hoped. Could you talk to us about your book, the framework there, and how we might think about asking questions and flexing those listening muscles to get depth with everyone that we interact with? I do think that the majority of the time, (laughs) under usual circumstances, (laughs) not pandemic circumstances that have, in some cases, as you say, you know, opened up relationships, which is wonderful. Most of the time, we're operating at this other level in conversation, which is what I call surface listening, which is when you hear enough of the conversation, you know, you nod, you smile, you can ask a follow-up maybe, but you're not getting to that place of real connectedness and that you're not getting beyond the literal, maybe you get a little bit of subtext, a little bit of meaning, but you're not really getting to that emotional level, which is where so much of the real human connection occurs. And so one of the techniques that you can bring into conversation is to ask better questions. One of the things that we often do without realizing it is we ask questions that already have some kind of response baked in. So we ask those questions based on our expertise or our assumption or our opinion, and they can lead a person down a particular path or bias them in a certain way. And this is something that In research, you have to be extremely careful about because you will get to the wrong outcome. You will get bad data, bad insights. But we can actually take that same diligence into our everyday conversations and start to change how we ask questions. So instead of asking questions that start with do or is, you can ask questions that start with are or how. They just naturally open things up a little bit in conversation. And you can catch yourself when you do start to inadvertently lead someone down a certain path. So instead of saying something like, are you nervous about that project that you've taken on? You can say, how do you feel about that project? And it's a really small difference. But in one case, you might have inadvertently planted the seed that this person should be nervous about this project, even though that wasn't your intention. And so by asking a more open-ended how question, then you really let them lead the way. And I think that's a wonderful way to start those conversations. And then there are little things that you can do as well to keep encouraging the conversation to go deeper. They're really small questions. They don't even sound like questions. So you can say, tell me more about that or say more. Or one that I really like is just to let the other person finish what they've said and then say, because, and it's sort of a dot, dot, dot. It's like, well, you feel this way because... And then they'll fill it in. They tend to fill it in for you. And it's not that you're kind of like 
you're not manipulating, you're not like drawing things out that are uncomfortable. Obviously, if there's a boundary, you should respect that. But you're just gently opening the door so that if there is more to be said, the person can share it. And that tends to change the nature of our conversations when you really let the other person lead in that way. You also mentioned, and I've been practicing this since I read your book, is kind of waiting for pauses, letting there be uncomfortable silence and letting that be an okay thing, right? And so instead of just responding really quickly, take a pause, see if there's anything else that needs to be said, and then kind of continue on with your conversation. I also think that it, it makes people feel a little uncomfortable, but comfortable at the same time, right? Because you are letting them finish their thought necessarily without having to like rush it out of them, right? I guess my question to you here is, how do you become more comfortable with the silence, right? How do you become more comfortable with those long pauses? And are there any tips or tricks that you do? Obviously, as a researcher, you've done this a lot, but that you could maybe tell us how to do, I think would be really interesting. Yeah. So I do think our natural instinct is to kind of cringe when there's silence in conversation. It's called awkward silence for a reason. Mm-hmm. We really don't <laughs> like it. <laughs> but it, you know, I think we have to combat that instinct of, oh my gosh, this is a bad thing. Like this means that I'm boring the other person, or this means that I've lost them, or this means that they're mad at me, right? There's so many things that you could just start to run through your head to explain the silence and why you should fill it. But when we do allow a little bit of breathing room, that tends to open the conversation up a little bit more. And maybe that person was just thinking, (laughs) processing, chewing on something that you'd said, right? gearing up to share something that is hard to say. And so there is a ton of value in being able to provide that silence. But yes, it is uncomfortable because we have been basically taught that it's not a good thing. So I think some of what you can do is really simple, which is just count to 10 in your head. Most people will not let you get to 10 seconds before they chime in and break the silence. So that's like a very tactical one. I am by nature a very impatient person. So I find that that's helpful because it gives me something to do instead of just chiming in. But I think also, I mean, even though we often think that these silences are a bad thing, I think we can probably also think of relationships, friendships, that you realize you're so content just sitting in silence with this other person. And that's a degree of intimacy because it's so rare that we don't always get. And so we really recognize it when it's there. When you're in the car, just quiet with the other person, or you're on the couch reading a book, like you're both doing your own thing, but you're sharing in a moment together. And I think calling on those moments to help reframe like silence is bad can also help of of just remembering, well, actually silence is like this very intimate thing that we can share right now. And In fact, it's a gift in conversation. How do you find connection with people who don't, that they're not forthcoming with their emotion and they're not necessarily, they're a little hard to connect with? Could be a a child that you uh, are parenting or mentoring, or could be a close friend who just, it just doesn't come easy to them. Are there techniques or ways we might think about how we listen and open up conversations with those folks? I think this is where those really small nudges that I was mentioning earlier can help, particularly when you know the person is not naturally chatty because the last thing you want to do is push them away. So those questions that don't sound like questions can be very useful. I also think depending on the conversation and the person You can also give them a heads up. You can state your intention up front. This can be really helpful in difficult conversations. And you can just say, hey, you know, this might get a little uncomfortable, but please know that my intention is not to provoke or push in any way. And, you know, what I'm trying to do is understand you and your experience. So I think kind of Letting everybody opt in, (laughs) especially when it's someone who doesn't naturally want to do that, can be important. And then gently nudging things along can also be really important. But one other thing I would say is 
you know, in those kinds of conversations, when you know that it's something that you want to connect with this other person and they might not be there right alongside you, I think it is important to pay attention to what do they need out of this conversation? So not just what is it that I need out of this conversation, but what are they bringing to the table? And am I aware of those needs? Do I know how to meet those needs? Is that the conversation we need to be having is what they're, you know, grappling with and starting to identify what does this person need from me? What does this person need from this conversation? And can I meet that need? And can I adapt if, you know, my instinct is to do something other than what they're asking for in conversation? How do you identify that that's what you're doing? How do you identify their need? Mm-hmm. It goes back to the section where you talk about surface listening, right? And and surface listening, you focus kind of on what you want to get out of the conversation versus what somebody else should be getting out of the conversation. How do you identify that you're actually doing that? Because I think it can be really tricky and really hard to do that, right? Because you still want to get your point across or you still want to get the information you need out of that, but you also need to kind of partnership in this question and make sure that they're getting out of it. How do you do that? Totally. It's one of the harder things to do is to, you know, try and understand another person and what they're looking for in conversation. But one of the things that I suggest is starting with, again, knowing yourself and what you bring into conversation and specifically what I call a default listening mode. So what is your default? What is your natural way of listening in conversation? What is the filter that you tend to hear things through? And does that apply? Is that needed in that conversation? And so an example of these modes, which we all have, and none of them are bad. They're all good. They all have their own virtues, but they also all have their own pitfalls. An example would be someone who has a problem-solving listening mode. And that's when you hear everything through the lens of a problem to be solved. So someone might be sharing the responsibilities they have on their plate, whether at home or at work. And a problem solver might hear that as, I have to help take something off this person's plate. They're really stressed out. What can I do to fix this issue? Which is just such a like generous and beautiful response, but not always what's needed. You know, maybe the person needs that, but maybe the person is just trying to say, I have a lot on my plate. I'm working really hard. And I just want you to know that I'm working really hard. Like it's important for me to to have that be seen, that my effort is seen. And that's it. And if you try and take something off their plate, they might feel belittled or micromanaged in some way. So that's one example of a mode. And I'll give just one other, which is identifying. Identifying as a listening mode also comes from a really good place, which is we want to relate to the other person. We want to show them that we're on the same page, that we understand them. And so someone might share a story about a difficult situation with let's say, a spouse, a partner. And in our attempts to identify if that's the mode that we're in, we might say something like, I know exactly how you feel. It's like when I had this difficult situation with my manager. Maybe that's helpful to the other person because it makes them feel affirmed of like, wow, somebody else knows what I'm going through. That feels great. But it's also really hard to identify appropriately. They might hear that and feel... Like, I can't believe you're comparing a spousal situation with a work situation, totally different. Or they might just feel like, even if it is an appropriate comparison, that you've just changed the subject and now you're making it about you. And they're kind of still trying to work on expressing a need, (laughs) which is like, I need to feel supported. So I think part of identifying other people's needs first starts with, understanding what needs do you naturally look for in conversation through that default listening mode, and then evaluating whether that's what's needed in a given conversation. That's super helpful. So I know you've been out doing podcasts, and I'm sure talking to people about the book and all that stuff, all from the comforts of your very own home, I'm sure. Um, you know, a lot of what you're talking about, it, I mean, for people who are sort of already motivated to become more complete humans, it's like, wow, this is amazing. I can't wait to start doing this. But there's a lot of people that don't necessarily. I mean, some of the people that most need to develop listening skills are probably the very people who don't know they need to develop listening skills. And I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm sort of 
Well, I'm curious, like what the response has been. If you feel like people are open to this message, maybe you have some thoughts about how to approach somebody who you think could benefit from this shift in mindset. It's an amazing message, but it's a little bit of a eat your broccoli kind of message. Uh, <laughs> but I think there's actually, I think there's actually a lot more to it than that. I don't mean to say it's just eat your broccoli, although broccoli's awesome. Um, so. Sure. I think the short answer would be my book makes a great gift for those people that you're talking about. <laughs> well played. Well played. <laughs> um, but I, I hear you. And I, um, yes, I think, I think that's true probably of most books that have some sort of practical application, right? The people who are drawn to them are going to be the people who want to improve in some way. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that you know, my hope for the book and for the broader conversation of like listening, being an important communication skill and a way of connecting with other people. I think part of how that happens is, yes, people who are naturally inclined to want to improve this skill do that through the book. But I also think that if you're a parent or a manager, you've probably heard the phrase of modeling the behavior, right? It's not just telling someone, I think you should do this, but it's performing that. It's doing that for yourself and for them. And I believe that the more of us who improve our listening skills and invest in our listening skills and bring that into our everyday conversation, people will notice because you can feel when someone is really genuinely listening to you. And it's really obvious because it doesn't happen that often. So (laughs) we can probably all think of the one friend in our life or colleague or whomever it is who you have a conversation with them and you just walk away thinking like, yes, like feeling inspired or feeling understood or feeling seen and known in some way. And I think the more that we practice that, the more other people feel that. And there is a sort of natural building of a, I want to do that for other people. And I think for a certain group, that's a conscious decision. And for another group, I don't think it's a conscious decision, but I do think it's shifting the conversation from me, 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 I need to persuade, I need to pitch, I need to lead, I need to influence, I need to work on my public speaking skills. Like culturally speaking, I feel like we've got that field covered. (laughs) And so what I'm trying to do is include this other part of the conversation and slowly person by person shift how we relate to each other through conversation. It also helps you with kind of your own self-development in terms of like not multitasking. There was a part of the book that I really loved and I resonated with so much where, you know, somebody was talking to me and asking me for advice and I was on my laptop doing something else. And then I looked up and I was like, I didn't want to say I didn't hear what you said. So I was like, tell me more, you know, <laughs> and then it just, and then it just kind of kept unraveling. They're like, well, I don't know what to do. Can you help me? And you're like, Meep. you know, and you don't want to admit that you haven't been listening to them because you've been trying to do too much. And I think, for relationships in general, whether it's you are managing people or are in a relationship with a partner, it helps to slow down and to realize that if you take time to focus on these conversations, you're not going to have to backtrack later. And it's almost like you're doing less work up front, right? Yeah. And there's actually studies on this with doctors and how they approach their patients and how quickly they go through their checklist versus taking the time up front to listen and let the patient tell their story and then follow up. And even though normally we think, okay, I got to get through the checklist, like, you know, go, go, go. This is going to be more productive. When doctors take that approach, it actually takes longer because they miss things along the way that if they had just opened things up and let the patient tell their story and practice really deeply listening, then they would have gotten much further earlier on. And so I think I hope that that changes in the medical field because, boy, that makes me nervous <laughs> just thinking about ooh, the number of mistakes that might come out of that approach. But also, you know, to your point, absolutely, it's not a fast process. There's no shortcut to it. But when you invest up front, then you don't have to worry about getting caught, like not knowing what's going on or did they ask that question already or have we moved on to something and I wasn't paying attention? I've learned the hard way that uh, from the school of hard knocks that apologizing is a key piece of being successful in relationships, friendships or romantic relationships. 
How would cultivating our listening skills help us be better at apologizing? I think that when you bring listening into an apology, just as when you bring listening into maybe a less loaded type of conversation, you are making it more about the other person than you. And that's really important in an apology. I think we've all heard the sort of apology, non-apology, which is sort of, I'm sorry you feel this way about my behavior, which is really not a genuine apology. And so I think bringing listening in, number one, I think it allows us to see where we're wrong sooner (laughs) because we're paying attention and because we're tuning in to what's happening for the other person emotionally and we're picking up on these cues through their voice, through what they're saying, through their tone, if we can see them, you know, through their body language. And so I think we're more likely to tune into where we might be in the wrong sooner. But I also think that specifically going back to humility, like that plays a huge role in giving a genuine apology. And again, going back to this person is the expert. I'm not the expert. And they know their lived experience. They're the person who knows that the best and I can learn from them. I think that changes the nature of the kind of apology we can even give. So it's really that shift from like self to other and trying to tune into their experience and trusting that they're hurt for a reason and they, and they know that. And so our job is to acknowledge and accept and admit while also keeping our own ego or emotions at a manageable level. You got into this sort of towards the end of the book. I think you got into the difficult conversations was one of the last chapters. And then there was a piece that I sort of flocked to really wet run. I saw it in the table of contents, which was about managing your energy and and kind of talking about how tiring it gets. You know, I'm on Zoom all the time. You know, we all know we're living in a pandemic. There's a lot of conversation going on all the time. And we all have limits. And I'm sort of, again, you talked about it a little bit in the book, but I'm wondering like how you manage your own energy, how you know when your energy's flagging. You know, it definitely makes me appreciate that I would not survive as a therapist. I just don't, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't have it to listen that long, that intently. I don't know if I'm asking for tips, but just maybe some observations about how to manage your energy level so that you can bring it all to the important conversations. I think this is so important. And I really wanted, I wanted to dedicate a chapter to this idea because listening is work. It's effortful. It's tiring. And that's the sign of good listening because we're really in it. But also we don't want to go so far that we just become this vessel for another person, you know, and we're just kind of constantly receiving everything they have to say. And we do need to take care of ourselves in the process. And so The way that I learned how to do that was mostly through trial and error, which is how I learn a lot about myself is trial and error and observation. And so in the book, I talk about, you know, what are some of the things that you can do to prevent pushing yourself too far? And that's things like pacing yourself. So not trying to jam every minute of your day with a deep one-on-one conversation. It's taking breaks. I know that there are some people, especially if you're in a leadership position, where you just feel like, I am not in control of my calendar. Like I just show up and I go from meeting to meeting and there's no such thing as pacing myself. It's just not realistic. And I hear that. And I think I've certainly felt that way at previous points, but there's always a little bit of a break that you can take. Even if it's just a 90 second reset (laughs) between one meeting and another just 90 seconds to take some deep breaths, to close your eyes, to clear your mind, to jot something down from a previous session so that you can go into this next session with more of a blank slate. There are these small moments that we can take for ourselves throughout the day, in the beginning of the day. Maybe you've got a busy family, but you're the first one up in the morning and just want to enjoy that silence. And so I think it's partly pacing yourself. It's partly finding these pockets of time where you can tune into your experience. And then also knowing for yourself, what are those things, those activities or hobbies that make you feel refreshed at the end of a long day? And what are your personal 
limits. So for some people, having one intense conversation a day is enough to put them out of commission. Like that's it. And for other people, they could do four. Maybe they can do five. God bless if you could do more than that. That's a lot. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so I think part of it is recognizing these things in yourself, finding those limits, and then honoring those boundaries to the extent that you're able and designing your day in a way that really honors those. And if you really, truly can't, then finding those existing pockets of time to just regroup before you move on. So let me ask you this. Curiosity is something that you talk about in the book. And you say getting curious means being open to learning more about a topic, idea, or person, even if it doesn't initially pique your interest. Though it can at times feel like a chore, there are many benefits of being curious. So you talk about recharging, right? And then you need to shift into this mindset of being curious in your next meeting or your next interaction. What are benefits or what are ways that you could, I don't know, kind of tell yourself that these are good things to be curious about and how can these benefits be applied in real life, especially while you are recharging and while you are going from meeting to meeting? What kind of drives you through to continue to be curious? Well, I guess the first thing I'll say is like when I'm in those moments of recharging, I'm not thinking about being curious (laughs) because I'm probably not in conversation or if I am, I'm like, trying to process something that I'm thinking through, whether that's with my therapist or a friend or journal, you know, I do try and keep those moments discreet because that's what makes them restorative. If I'm still thinking about, you know, how am I going to listen? It's not really going to recharge me. But, you know, assuming I am in a situation where I need to channel that curiosity, I think the driving motivator remains the same, which is this is how I'm going to get to know someone. And this is how I'm going to connect with someone. Oftentimes when we meet someone or we're trying to strengthen a relationship, sometimes our instinct is to talk about ourselves or to tell an engaging story as a way of getting the other person to be interested in us. And what the research actually shows is that People perceive you to be more interesting when you demonstrate an interest in them. So that's where the curiosity part comes in. If you can channel that curiosity, not only are you getting to know the other person, but they're actually going to be more drawn to you by demonstrating that quality. And I think, again, part of it is because we don't always get that. (laughs) And how good does it feel when someone demonstrates a genuine interest in who you are as a person? Especially, I would say, when it's not a topic that you're naturally interested in. So like if you are a person who's really into sports and I don't really care about sports, it's going to mean that much more if I can get curious about your sports hobby, your passion for this, right? Because it is demonstrating care and attention. And I think it's a very human desire to be seen in that way. Do you have any kind of concerns about the future of conversation? You know, uh, Sherry Turkle, I'm, I'm sure you've read a lot of her stuff. I mean, she's written about this in great detail. My kids are of an age where they, you know, were right in the sweet spot of their personal development when social media and smartphones and all that stuff came out. And I think there is a legitimate concern that even those of us who are not of our informative years, you know, are losing our ability to talk to one another. And we spend an awful lot of time kind of alone together, again, sort of to quote Sherry's work. Do you have any concerns about the future conversation and where things are headed? I think it would be silly not to be concerned. I think yeah. things are just changing so, so much, so rapidly. And there's so much that we don't know about how our connections are changing. I think we have more research than we did before on that. I mean, Sherry Turkle is a great example of that. She talks about how just even having a device in your line of sight. So even if it's face down, you're not looking at it, but just in your line of sight decreases your ability to be empathetic. And that's astonishing. And I think that I'm sure we will learn more about the impact, I mean, in this case of technology, on our relationships. But I do have hope and I'm optimistic because it's such a human 
need. And while it may be misguided sometimes how we get it, like I think we maybe rely on social media too much instead of having a real conversation with someone, the need is there. The need is human and the solution is human. And so as much as there is noise and will continue to be noise and frankly hurdles to connecting, I do think that ultimately we can still do it. It's just going to take more thought and intentionality to really connect in that way. Were there other researchers and writers that were talking about listening, so to speak, that you consulted or you thought were interesting and useful? Yeah, I talked to other listening experts, people who work in coaching professions or therapists or journalists to get a sense of, you know, their listening techniques, also how they recover from listening because these are other professional listeners. And I think that what those professions all have in common, and I would say research is part of that too, is there's a desire to know another person's story. And that story can come out at the therapist's office, um, you know, that very personal story. That story can come out in the lab of, you know, how they relate to a product or set of routines. That story can come out in an interview that then becomes part of a larger story. But they're really all about trying to understand another person. And so I think that when you kind of zoom out in that way and think about listening as like, that's the avenue, that's the way in. To me, that made it that much more special of a mission when you think about how much listening can do to help get you closer to really understanding another person's story. How was it for you writing a book? It's hard to think of anything that's more the antithesis of listening than sitting by yourself looking at a page, trying to figure out what you want to say. How was that whole experience for you? Obviously, there are different mediums, but I actually think that they're connected in the sense that Listening is so much about you as a person and reflecting and introspection. And the book really taps into that and tries to help readers do that. But in terms of the book writing process, I was lucky in the sense that if anybody's shopped around a nonfiction book before, you know that you have to put together a proposal which sort of outlines what is the book going to entail. And it wasn't until that point that I really knew whether or not this project was going to have legs. But when I sat down to outline the book, I realized I had a lot to say on it and it kind of just poured out. And I think in some ways that's because whether or not I was writing or thinking about writing about this topic, I had been practicing this for almost a decade. Like just these skills, these techniques, but also this intention in listening in this way. And so by the time I put pen to paper, I was much more ready than I thought I would be. And so that was really encouraging and gave me some nice momentum going into the project. Then of course, you know, the world turned upside down and <laughs> I also had a baby. So I was partly on maternity leave while I was working on the book. And so there were many sort of real world challenges that got in the way, but at least that initial momentum and drive and also just motivation to get the message out was there. Tell us about your life audit and how you've used that in your life. Sure. So the Life Audit is a piece that I put together maybe seven years ago. I was at a particular moment in my career where I was sort of fine with where I was, but I wasn't, you know, feeling super inspired. And there were all these things that I was excited about. And I took an afternoon and paired a research synthesis technique with some deep thinking, you know, but I basically just used research techniques to understand, was I living my life in a way that was setting me up for these greater ambitions? Given everything that I wanted to do, was I surrounding myself with the right people to get there? And was I being true to my values along the way? And those are big and messy questions. And so that's why I brought these research techniques in of jotting things down, brainstorming, using post-its, using a cluster analysis. And so I spent this afternoon doing this and then I wrote about it because after, you know, a couple of hours of doing this exercise, I did feel like I had a ton of clarity. 
I felt like it was really clear, you know, that I had these certain buckets that I was really interested in, like writing and illustrating and speaking and research. And I could kind of see this big picture of how it might all fit together, but also where I was spending my time and how I might get there. And so I just wrote up this blog post afterwards with a pretty detailed set of steps because the thing that has always motivated my writing has been, will this be helpful for someone else? Is there something that someone can learn from this? You know, I've kind of learned this the hard way. Maybe I can help someone else skip that step. And so I shared it and it really struck a nerve with people. It was very positively received and so much so that at the time I actually contemplated becoming a life coach because I had so many people pinging me and saying like, will you lead me through a session? (laughs) You know, like, will you help me figure out what I should do next? Which was lovely, but also like just way beyond, you know, my expertise. I was like, well, yes, this is the starting point, but I don't know if I want to take full personal responsibility for your dreams right now. But yeah, it was just, it was an exercise that I had started for myself to provide clarity. And then when I shared it, I found that it served the same purpose for other folks who were at a similar crossroads. Did it work for you? Do you feel like now that you've got some hindsight to look back on that process, did you change your approach? Did you make some changes in your life that got you to where you are today? I mean, here you are, you you published a book, you're on a podcast, you're, you're talking to people, you're doing things, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I um, I would say, yes, it worked. I think just the simple act of putting your goals, your wishes, your desires on paper, it's the version of sort of like saying it out loud and being held accountable to it mm. by myself. You know, it's like, I saw that and I saw that's what I wanted. And I probably maybe wouldn't have admitted all of that to someone else, but I could say it to myself. And that made it that much more real. So I think that's part of it. And I also think that like, yeah, there were areas that I saw, you know, wow, you're spending a ton of time on this, but your bigger aspiration is, you know, this other thing. Maybe you need to shift some of that energy. And the same was true for relationships for me. And this is a tough process, but I do recommend looking at who you spend the most time with and are those relationships supporting you in these, not just goals or, you know, wishes, but also in the values that you have and, you know, want to put forth into the world. And I think it's very easy for us to fall into relationships that are convenient. (laughs) You know, somebody lives in our neighborhood or their coworkers. So we see them all the time or, you know, whatever that sort of proximity, they're always available. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're part of a tribe that can get you closer to what you're looking for. So I think just being honest about that, and it's not easy, but I definitely made some changes in those relationships and also just in how I was spending my time overall. Well, Jimena, we could probably talk to you for five more hours if we had the opportunity, but I think we'll probably leave it here. However, one question we like to ask all of our guests before we let them go is... What advice would you give to your younger self? Hmm. I think I would say write it all down. Because I know for me that I process, I understand my experience better. I learn from my experience when I have this outlet to just get it out there. There's nothing that I look back on now and say, you should have done it this way, or you shouldn't have done that set of things. I've had a very meandering career path from academia to the art world, to tech, to writing. And I wouldn't change any of that because I think it's all led me to where I am. So I think all I would say is just write it all down and try and enjoy it. What advice would you give to your older self? Ooh, um, slow down. (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being here with us. We really enjoyed speaking with you. I enjoyed listening to you. Yeah. (laughs) I enjoyed talking to you about listening. I love it. Thank you, guys. I, I had a great time. Thank you. Bob Meredith, were there any key takeaways for you from that conversation? Yeah, obviously I thought it was lovely. It was a, it was a great conversation. It was super fun getting to listen to her 
for me, I think one of the main takeaways was just, again, sort of living life with intentionality, trying to slow down, be intentional about really listening to the other person. Don't be so convinced about where you're trying to go. Be open, curious. The question I kind of asked towards the beginning there about the researcher mindset, I found to be, you know, if I find that the, the way she talked, she's, she just talked more like a researcher as opposed to how I hear designers talk, you know? So I thought all that was, was really interesting. I liked her approach and how she talked about things. It was really easy to understand. I think, you know, we all kind of get stuck in our heads a little bit and there's so much noise and it was nice to just kind of hear some practical approaches of how to take a step back and really just focusing on listening. And, you know, the point that she made was, you know, sometimes you got to slow down to catch up. And I think that was really important to hear that, you know, you don't have to multitask. You don't have to do everything at once. And if you do it right the first time, which is listening, you don't have to repeat things or, you know, go back and repeat conversations that might not be fruitful. So I thought that was really interesting. I liked what she had to say about listening modalities, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. listening with a fixing mindset, which in my judgment is something that a lot of men do. I speak Mm -hmm. from my my experience is like, I find a lot of times when I hear someone I'm close with talking about, you know, the challenges that they're experiencing, my instinct is I want to help out. Mm -hmm. I want to help you solve this problem. And I've been told multiple times, not productive. I, I don't need you to solve my problem. I just need you to hear me. And sometimes that's just hard to kind of wrap my head around. And then also the identifying with a person's perspective. If they're complaining about a spouse or something that's going on in their life, a thing that really annoys me is talking to friends about challenges with my child, and then they compare that to the challenges they have with their pet, uh, as if that's <laughs> st- somehow remotely related. Noted. <laughs> like they never have a shared, shared experience. <laughs> I will never do that. (laughs) All all right. All right. Yeah. That's really helpful to just think about those different modalities and that we could have different listening modalities, that it's not just always like, I'm going to take in what you're saying, but considering kind of empathetically, what are they trying to get out of this conversation or what is it that they need and how might I be supportive? Yeah. She has an infant. As someone who had teenagers and now has young adults, I think like, you know, listening without an agenda I think it ends up being like one of the most important parenting skills you can have. Because when your kids get, you know, 14, 15, 16, if you jump into that problem solving mindset, it's really demotivating and demoralizing for them. It's almost like you're signaling to them that you don't think you have confidence that they can solve these problems on their own. And sometimes they just need to vent. And also, like, especially teenage boys, but teenage girls as well, like, it's challenging for them to really express what they're feeling and to be really open with their parents. And so you have to listen for all these different little cues. And you really have to relax your internal agenda and be really open to meeting them where they are. You know, it plays out, obviously, in work conversations, lots of other places. It's just, we were asking, like, well, why should you become a better listener? It seems like it's a lot of work. It's like, well, you should be a better listener, first and foremost, because you're going to be a wildly better parent and spouse. And I know you care about that, you know? <laughs> you're going to be better at whatever it is that you're trying to do. Are you mm-hmm. trying to be better at work? Are you trying to be better in your your marriage or your partnerships? Yeah, it's such a fundamental skill to get better at all those things that bring satisfaction and meaning to our life. I did love her, the practical tips. I think when she was saying them, I was they weren't like deeply sticking with me. But now that I think about it, just the idea of actively saying, I'm going to try to be a better listener. And I'm going to accept that there's limits to my energy. And I'm going to pace myself accordingly mm-hmm. so that I can be intentional about this. It's actually very kind of hopeful and motivating. It's like, oh, this is something I can get better at. In the same way, I'll get stronger if I start working out. I can become a better listener if I just decide I want to become a better listener. Like, that's something I could change. I also really like how she addresses recharging and how it is a ton of energy to listen and to focus and how you do need to recharge. And while it might not be, you know, a luxury evening, drinking a glass of wine or sitting in a bathtub, it can be chunks of time that you can specifically focus on recharging and making sure that you are ready for the next conversation versus kind of going, 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 which I think is something we're all sort of acclimated and used to in this world. We only touched on it briefly, but the work that she did back in 2014 on creating a life audit is 
I think, very interesting. And there's some threads in other conversations we've had with guests on the show about being reflective on your life, asking yourself some core fundamental questions. Do I have what I need right now to get where I want to go? Who am I surrounding myself with? And are they the right folks who bring energy or opportunity or connection to my life? That can be a very difficult set of questions to confront. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I've, I've done things like that a couple of times myself. And you know, if you notice when she's talking about the life audit, she sat down for a couple of hours. It's one of those things that like, if you just kind of keep going with it bit by bit, it's not that overwhelming. It's when 20, 30 years goes by and you've never had that moment of reflection that suddenly you freak out and have you know the fabled midlife crisis. But if you're sort of dealing with it bit by bit, I think you get a chance to kind of course correct in less, you know, less severe ways. Have either one of you had a situation where you felt like who I'm surrounded by is maybe not bringing me all of what I need in my life? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, totally. What was that like? Well, for me, I think it was it was moving down here, right, and finding new friends to be around. You know, you leave somewhere you've lived for 17, 18 years, and you move into a new community, and it's finding friends. And you kind of grok to the first people that you meet, but then you start to realize that those people m- might not be your people, right? And you're excited that they want to interact with you or go grab a glass of wine, but then you realize, you know, oh, well, yeah, we are a little bit different, or oh, this isn't how I want to spend my energy. And I think the big sign for me is if you leave a situation feeling worse and not better, it's a big sign of who you should evaluate who you're being around, you know? And so I think for me, that was eye-opening, but healthy, nonetheless. Yeah, I've done, I've done a couple of annual reviews and it's a, it's a you know, personal annual reviews. It's a similar process. You flip back through your calendar and there's, you know, a few dozen meetings you'll flip through like with friends or colleagues or, or associates, whatever. And, you know, you just, you start looking at the names and some of those people jump out. It's like, oh man, I'm so excited when I get to go see Aaron or I get to talk to Meredith. Like those are so exciting. And then there's other ones you're like, oh, I don't know, man, can we just reschedule that? And then it's, and it's, you don't have to get all judgy about it. You know, I mean, you could, it's, it's not about getting judgy and saying that person's a bad person. You're just saying like, I don't know, maybe our lives aren't aligned right now. Maybe I don't really have the energy to listen to them. Maybe they're not listening to me. It's just not a beneficial relationship. And then you just decide, well, I don't know. In the next year, I'm not going to take those calls anymore. <laughs> and, and you move on. How do you think Hamina's book and just her perspective, what you learned today, will change the way that you operate on a day-to-day basis? What do you take away? For me, it's intention. You know, actually evaluating what conversations I have and how I have them. And listening to people as a thought partner or as a partner and listening to what they're saying versus kind of what you said before, Aaron, trying to fix things. I'm a natural fixer. And so I think for me, it was taking away. Sometimes people just need to talk. Sometimes people want to hash you know, things out and, and spitball things and there doesn't necessarily need to be an action, but they want somebody there to listen. And I think through that listening, you can create a stronger bond. Yeah, I thought the piece that she used, I can't remember exactly what the words it was that she used, but she was talking about leading people on versus asking them more open-ended questions. It reminded me very much of my experience in therapy. Like over and over, therapists were are just sort of like, well, how does that make you feel? <laughs> you know, and, mm-hmm. it's, and it gives you a lot of room to maneuver and it gives the other person time and space to feel through and think through what they're really experiencing. And it gives them the space to not have to make sense, right? Mm-hmm. They just kind of get to throw a bunch of stuff up. You know, when I write, and I think most people do this, you give yourself permission to do that horrible first draft where you're just sort of throwing up on the page. And that's a really important part of the process. And it's it's often hard to do that in conversation because you feel like you're supposed to make sense for the other person. And when the other person sort of says, well, you know, how does that make you feel? Or they ask you these open-ended questions, I think it gives you permission to just explore some more. And in that exploration, you get to some much more interesting, meaningful I think, truthful places than if you're trying to rush to the conclusion. For me, just the uh, recognition that listening is a skill and listening is a, a foundational kind of fundamental thing that I need to think about and be aware about. Like if I'm going to go be in a social setting someday post-pandemic around people, there are a lot of times I bring in the remains of the day clouding my head and that you know affects the way I have conversations with people more that I want to say things than I want to take on things. Just 
being mindful going into those social situations that listening ears and kind of an open mind can give me the thing that I want the most, which is connection with other people. Reconsidering is created by Meredith Blackbrandt, Bob Baxley, and Aaron Walter, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed the episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player. And if you'd like to support what we're doing, we'd be grateful if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. It'll help others discover the show. Until next time, remember life like the seasons is ever-changing. But satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in.